It's the best reminder, chapter 5 of Daniel, is the best reminder that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. And we may need that reminder in the context of these days, lest we think that everything's running wild and out of hand and God has lost control. He's still very much in charge. And the book of Daniel chapter 5 is the reminder that the Most High God still rules in the kingdoms of men. The book of Daniel is unique in that every chapter except the last one, it gives a, an identification of the reigning king. It says that in your introduction in the worksheet. And it also, in most cases, gives a date so that we can really pinpoint the exact time and, uh, uh, that all of this is trans transpires, and that's very helpful because the book of Daniel does not move in chronological order. It has no chronology to it. It just jumps from era to era and uh, doesn't move in, in a progression of time. And you can get lost reading a book of Daniel, much like you do when you read the book of Jeremiah. There is no chronological sequence. And so when we come to chapter 5 tonight, we, we read the name of a man we've not heard before. His name is Belshazzar. And he's king of Babylon. Now, I think it is important that I um, give you a little bit of a background. This won't mean a thing to you, but I want to try to impress you. And I need some practice on the names here. These names are weird. To try to give you a little sequence, so just listen, if you will, to the, to the, um, uh, the, the uh, chronology of the kings who reigned in Babylon. There was, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, who took the throne at the death of his father and reigned approximately 45 years. His only son, whose name was Evil Merodach, E-V-I-L-Merodach, succeeded him about 561 B.C., but was murdered, assassinated two years later by Neriglazar, who then replaced him on the throne in 559 B.C. Now, Neriglazar himself was murdered, it was, the, it was probably done, or no question about it, was done at the hand of Nabonidus, the husband of one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. So it was his son-in-law who murdered the reigning king, and Nabonidus became king. And upon taking the throne, he chose his son, Belshazzar, to reign as a co-regent with him. So as you read the book of Daniel, chapter 5, it refers to Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, when in fact it was his grandson. That term means really descendant, but it was his grandson, really. Now, Belshazzar's father loved to travel, and so he was gone all the time, and he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge. So this explains the mention of only Belshazzar in chapter 5. Now, when Belshazzar was king of Babylon, Babylon was ready to fall. The nation, the, the city, was at the brink of destruction, of falling. It seemed like it would never happen. For the city was, it seemed impregnable. It was a city so large, it was 60 miles around the city. It was surrounded with a wall 350 feet high and 80 feet across so that you could park four chariots abreast on the wall of the city, ancient city of Babylon. And these golden chariots were hooked to four 
black stallions, and men rode in these gold stallions around the walls of that city day and night to patrol it. Around the city of of Babylon was a 30-foot-wide moat that protected a a million two hundred and two hundred thousand people who lived behind those walls in the ancient city of Babylon. No military kingdom would ever break through those walls, so they fought. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the king at the time of the building of the city of Babylon. He also constructed the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. And he constructed a a constant water supply in the city of Babylon. As a matter of fact, the, the river Euphrates that you've seen on television running through Baghdad ran through the city of Babylon. And at the time this city was sieged in the reign of Belshazzar, he had a 20-year supply of food stored in the ancient city so they could have survived a siege of 20 years. Belshazzar was a very licentious man. Some uh, uh, historians say that he suffered from terrible, a terrible self-image. He was wild and loose living, and he was a heavy drinker. And he reigned from 559 to 539 B.C. He was, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar, the builder of the city of Babylon's grandson. Now, militarily, at the time of Belshazzar's reign and the the time of this text, militarily, the Mede, the kingdom of the Medes, in coalition with the kingdom of Persia, were knocking at the door of Babylon. In fact, they were rapping at the gates of Babylon. The time this story was enacted, the city was under siege, and they knew it. Now, here's the amazing thing, that while the Medes and the Persians were outside the walls of the city of Babylon, ready to take it, they were Belshazzar and his leading officials and their women through this gigantic feast, and they were celebrating in festal joy. And it just suggests the smugness of these people and their arrogance and the security of this walled and fortified city. Now I want you to look with me at chapter 5, verse 1, and I want to read through verse 4. First, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. It was this gigantic banquet hall, thousand people. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, when he got a little tight, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been in my class on Sunday morning, we've studied the tabernacle and the uh, furniture and the utensils and the tabernacle in the holiest place, these, these vessels symbols of divinity, symbols of God, were a part of the sacredness of the temple. And, and, and to take them from the temple was a defilement. But the worst defilement is yet to come. These are the vessels that were sanctified in the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar, when he seized this Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he took these vessels with him into exile and had them stored, and they were in storage until this night. So he called for these vessels, 
in order that the king's king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, the gold, the the gods of Babylon. Now this feast was a, a, a blasphemous feast, And it was designed to give mockery to the God of Israel so that Belshazzar wanted to do something to show his might over the God of Israel. One historian describes the night like this. What a graphic picture. He said they were all sitting around and everybody was having a good time. Belshazzar was getting drunk. And so he gestured for the vessels to be brought. And when they were brought in to the banquet hall, a hush came. For nobody had ever seen anything that blasphemous done. The God of Israel, the vessels of God. And there was a hush over this hall as Belshazzar filled the vessel with wine and put it up to his mouth. And as he drank from it, the wine poured down into his beard and a thousand gasps went up. And when he finished drinking from the vessels, he put it down on the table, said the historian, and looked around with a smirk on his face as if to say, There, I did it. And God did nothing. And there was a pause of awesome silence. And then, spontaneously, a cheer went up. And everybody began to drink. And everybody began to celebrate. But there was an interruption that was designed to change all this feasting. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of of the hand that did the writing. Now, Without an, without an arm, without a body, this hand appeared on the wall. I remember as a kid, a professor came out from Hardin-Simmons and preached a revival at my church, and he preached a sermon I'll never forget on the handwriting on the wall. What a graphic scene that must have been. And he began to scratch, this hand begins to scratch on the plaster and on the blackened wall made black by the smoke that came from the lampstand. Now, I don't know how long it takes to sober up, but the world's record for sobering up took place right then. Now, notice the king's reaction. And the king's face grew pale, and the thoughts, his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, couldn't stand. He, he was like rubber. He just wilted, and his knees began knocking together. I can't imagine. Now the king called aloud. The word means that he screamed to bring in the, con- the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple. That means be given abundant riches. Royalty, it means. And have a necklace of gold upon his, around his neck. 
and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Well, why third ruler? Why not second? Well, he and his father were co-regents, third man in the kingdom. You tell me what that means, and you'll be the third man in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. I have never ceased to be amazed at that statement. I think if that bargain had been made me, I'd have made up something, don't you? <laughs> um, I'd have thought of something, you know, that that says. says, how are you doing, king? Have a good time. You know, drink all you can drink or whatever. But they, nothing. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew paler and his nobles were perplexed. Now verse 10. Enter this scene of uh, the queen, he calls her, the queen. I, I take it that this was a young woman from the harem of Nebuchadnezzar, probably one of the young women who was made a wife of Nebuchadnezzar in the past. She knew about Daniel. And she said, yeah, there is a person here who, who has quite a reputation, and he can interpret this dream. That's Tidwell paraphrase. We're moving along here. Now, I want you to know a little bit about Daniel at this point in time. Because there is no chronological order to the book of Daniel, you need to understand now that Daniel is in his 80s. And he has lived through the reign of five kings. You remember, of course, just moment by moment of review, Daniel was brought to Babylon from Jerusalem as a teenager and grew up in the court there of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that story from the past. Now the, now the years have passed, and he's in his 80s, and his testimony for God has not changed. Now I think that's pretty amazing, because after 70 years of living in the midst of the most vile kind of, of, of environment, his testimony was as fresh and striking as it was the day he was brought there. Now, now, Oswald Sanders has a great little book called Robust in the Faith, and this is what he says about Daniel. He says, The most outstanding element of his character was his moral courage. In Babylon, there was no temple worship, no Sabbath observance, and probably no Old Testament scriptures for him to read. With no aids to devotion... He retained utterly, remained utterly true to God under the most unfavorable circumstances. It was just one drunken banquet after another. It was just one drunken debauchery after another. It was just one assassination after another. And this young man became an old man as fresh in his faith as when he started. You never underestimate the grace of God to sustain. You tell me that you can't remain true to God in the environment you live in, that's, that's poppycock. You tell me the peer pressure is too great, that's foolish. You say to me that I live in an environment and I can't remain true to God as fresh as the day I was saved, that's nonsense. You never underestimate the grace of God to sustain. His testimony is as true as the day when he was saved, when he was taken to exile, when he became a believer. Now verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in, 
And the king spoke to Daniel and said, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. You're a pretty amazing guy. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I've personally heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read this, and he gives the promise, I'll give you riches, I'll put a gold, I'll drape you in gold, like a professional baseball player. I'll give you authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, look at this, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. In other words, keep your money. Pretty amazing. I mean, what's the use in getting a promotion if the, if the company is going bankrupt? I mean, what, where, really? Uh, keep your money. Let me pause to say the greatest temptation that ever come in a person's life is the temptation to compromise at the point of material gain. The greatest temptation that will ever come in your life will come at the point of compromise at the, at the, at the point of material advantage. I was... Well, you don't want to hear the long story. Yeah, probably you, you won't hurt Got off into college and started to work right out of the, right off of a farm. I didn't know a thing. I really knew what the world that the world was around. This guy, this guy I worked with, he told me one day he's talking about somebody in his business beating him out of some money. He said, "Let me tell you something. One thing you'll learn before too long: a guy'll sell his own grandmother for a buck." I thought the guy was pretty cynical. Well, the sad thing about it, he's pretty close to right. The greatest temptation, young people, that will ever confront you is the temptation to compromise in order to gain advantage materially. And so the book of Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I have to determine, am I serving man or do I serve God? Now look at verse 17. Daniel answered and said to them, keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, he said, I'll read the inscription. I'll make the interpretation known to you. But before he gets started with the interpretation, now that he has his attention, and now, he ha- that he ha- now since he has a captive audience, he thought he'd just preach a little bit. He, he had an opportunity to get a shot or two in here. Now look at what he says. He says, And because of the grandeur which he, O King, verse 18, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, really. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Sovereignty he had. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he became arrogant. He was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him, and he was driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. 
And his dwelling place was the, with the wild donkeys. And he was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that He sets over whomever, sets over it whomever He wishes. Yet, look at this. I want you to take a pencil, underline verse 22. Yet you, His Son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. Now, isn't that amazing? You knew that God humbled your grandfather and drove him insane to the point that he acted like an animal eating grass. You knew that. And yet you didn't humble your heart, even though you knew that God was that God kind of a God of judgment. You see, a person can know about the judgment of God and not, and not be affected by it. You never, ever notice that? No wonder when... Dives called out to Abraham and said, Send one to my brother's house to warn them lest they come to this place. Abraham answered, It won't do any good if they did because they have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe when judgment stares them in the face. Isn't it amazing? The humankind is of such nature, he can look down the red, raw throat of judgment and not be moved by it. That's what astounded Daniel. Verse 23, look, and if you haven't heard anything to this point now, the handwriting on the wall is up there, and everybody has, he's got everybody's attention. I want you to look at verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. Now hear this, look at this. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, singular, and your the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. I want you to notice two things about verse 23. Number one, are you hearing me? God holds your life breath in His hand, and He doles it out a breath at a time. And what that says is, is that you're just one breath away from God and His judgment. Is that astounding or not? The longer I live, the more I am convinced that God holds our breath in His hand and He gives it to us a breath at a time so that God gives you your next breath. And if He chooses, He can shut that off just like that. You better believe that. The second thing I want you to see is that the purpose of man's life, breath, is that he glorify God. The God in whose hand your life, breath, is thou hast not glorified. And the implication of that is this, that man has breath in order that he might glorify God. Now what if man does not glorify God? Then there is no reason for him to have life, breath. For the purpose and the reason for life breath 
is that man glorify God. All right, now the interpretation. This is the inscription that was written out. Many, many tikal upharsim. Now the literal translation of that is this. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Literally, that's what that says. Now I've said this so much that it's become old. You know why, you know when some, in, 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 the, in biblical language, when something is repeated... In the Hebrew, when something is repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. When we want to emphasize a word, we either underline it, we underline it if we're writing it, and we change our voice inflection when we're talking. We just yell a little louder or something. You know. Somebody said, I preach the same sermons, I just yell in a different place. So if I'm going to emphasize, if I'm going to emphasize something, I'm going to raise my voice. If I'm writing, I'm going to underline it. If I'm reading it in the Hebrew and I, I want it emphasized, I repeat it. So what he's saying is, you have been emphatically numbered. You have been categorically numbered. You have been evaluated by God Himself. And there has been total evaluation, numbered. Weighed on the scales of God and found deficient. And the result of it is that your kingdom will be Divided. Now that word does not mean split down the middle. It means to be scattered and disintegrated. One historian puts it like this. A very interesting thing. The general of Cyrus's army was at the gate of Babylon. Are you hearing? At the moment of the opening of the king's feast... He and his troops had diverted the water of the Euphrates and they were marching, he with his men, up the bed of the river into the city of Babylon, which lay on both of its banks. The river gate had been left unprotected. This city with its massive walls, which was supposedly impregnable, was now as good as conquered. Suddenly, with the flash of a moment, God brought a city, a nation, a pagan empire to its end. Now, you might think, how ingenious of those troops to divert the water of the Euphrates and just go walking down the riverbank into the city through the water gate left unprotected. That wasn't new, new news. What they did wasn't ingenious of the, Medo, the, the king of Cyrus's army. Let me show you. That was predicted hundreds of years before it happened. I want you to take your Bible and look to Jeremiah chapter 27. You've got to turn back to the left. And Jeremiah chapter 27, beginning of verse 4, reads like this. Jeremiah 27, you're still rustling old pages. I assume you're still looking for it or looking for the book or something. Here it is. And commanded them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I've made the earth and the men of the beast which are on the face of the earth. 
by my great power and my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And now I've given all these lands unto, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I've given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. And all the nations shall serve him and his son, watch, and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Now, I want to show you one better than that. One book back, Isaiah chapter 13. Now remember this. Isaiah is writing this 175 years before it happened. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, and then beginning at verse 15. Verse 1, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. Now verse 15, this is what he saw in prophetic vision. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. 175 years before this happened, before there ever was a powerful Middle Persian Empire who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of their womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, that's the city of Babylon, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches also will live there, shaggy goats will frolic there, hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. Now you take a modern day uh, encyclopedia, and you look up the city of Babylon, and all it will say is that it was just a whistle stop on the railway, railway to Baghdad. It's gone forever. We'll read a frightening statement out of Leupold's commentary on the book of Isaiah. Listen to this. That a city once so renowned, glorious and powerful, should experience so total an overthrow is well nigh unbelievable. But so it happened. Though a great conqueror like Alexander the Great saw an unusual potential in this ancient capital, neither he nor any other ever attempted a rebuilding and restoration of the city. There is something awesome about such complete desolation when, it's, when it continues century after century. Somehow even the wild Arabs will avoid the place and refuse to pitch their tent there. No shepherd of any racial background will make his flock lie down on this accursed ground and God's judgment 
wiped it out for good. Now, is that a chilling thought or not? Now, look at verse 30, the finality of God. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now I want you to take verse 30 and put it with that verse up. Where is it? Suddenly um, in verse 5. And you'll see the sudden finality of God. Suddenly God said, Ring down the curtain. This is the end. Now, there are two lessons from this chilling story. One, God's judgment may seem slow, but God's judgment is thorough. There are many who think, where is the justice of God? But suddenly, the same night, when God's clock catches up, His judgment is thorough. So Longfellow put it like this, Though the, wheat, though the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Though God's judgment may seem slow, they are thorough. Second, never underestimate the power of one solitary life. And there was this man taken to Babylon... 14 years of age, 70 years later, this one solitary life was pointing to the God who rules in the kingdoms of men. Never underestimate the power of a solitary life. Let's pray. Father, we are stunned at the relevance of this sermon, this story. We've made aware as we watch every day on our television of an event taking place in the same spot on earth. God, help us to see again and again that you are the God who rules in the kingdoms of men, the God who brings judgment to those who reject, disgrace, blaspheme, the God of heaven and earth. And I pray, Father, that before it is everlastingly too late for any of us, we might come to a knowledge of the grace of God that Daniel knew that made it such a difference in his life. Help us, Lord, before we stand in judgment, to stand in grace. For I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
There are three invitations. There's an invitation tonight for you to receive per personally Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Oh, hear me now. God holds your life a breath at a time, doles it out a breath at a time while you still have a breath. You need to come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. Cast upon yourself upon His mercy, upon His grace, trusting Him. Don't wait till the clock strikes in judgment. There might be some of us today who live in rebellion of God, of His will. What God needs in every age are men and women like Daniel who purpose in their heart to serve Him in any environment. You may need to come tonight to make other decisions as it relates to church membership, whatever. We urge you to come while we stand to sing. We invite you.